Good afternoon, everyone. That was rather lackluster, I have to say. Come on, you're here to hear something great. Good afternoon, everyone. Okay. You're all awake. I'm glad to hear it. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and it's uh, my pleasure to welcome you to another Banner Lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. Now, uh, before we begin today's program, let me remind you of a couple of things coming up on the calendar as this summer winds down, which I'm not quite sure how that happened, but uh, it is happening. Um, our next behind-the-scenes tour will take place on Saturday, August 31st. And the subject of that tour is something rather interesting. We're calling it Round Robin, Social Networking Before Facebook. <laughs> Believe it or not, people used to communicate among social networks before you had these electronic devices. So this tour features a collection of notes, photographs, and newspaper clippings passed among members of the Pollard family, including Virginia Governor John Garland Pollard, for over 40 years. And it offers a really fascinating and unique glimpse into American history. So I urge you to come to that on Saturday, August 31st, behind the scenes. Our next banner lecture will take place on September 4th, and that is a Wednesday. So a little off of usual uh, schedule, but Wednesday, September 4th at noon. And that day, you will hear a lecture about the War of 1812. The lecture will be called Fighting for Freedom, African Americans and the War of 1812. So a couple of things coming up on the calendar I hope you'll avail yourselves of. Now, while you were waiting, you might have seen the slide uh, or in the lobby noticed the 1 in 8.5 million display as a little case. Uh, but I'd like to remind you that throughout the month of August, the VHS is participating in the Virginia Association of Museums' Top 10 Endangered Artifacts Program. Uh, we have entered into this program what, what we know as the Celeron Plate, which is one of the most important artifacts to survive from Virginia's colonial period and one of our most treasured objects. And I will say that despite the great care that we take in displaying this lead plate, corrosion is always an enemy of a soft metal like lead. So we're pointing to its fragility as a way to uh, bring attention to the plate and to how uh, collections are cared for. So please take a moment today, um, learn more about the plate in the lobby, and then go to the VAM website and register your support for our efforts. If you click and you vote for uh, the Celeron plate, uh, it helps the VHS uh, enormously, so please do that. And now, uh, last little piece of housekeeping, if you have a cell phone, please take it out and switch it to off or silent or crush it under your heel or something that will, <laughs> that will keep it from interrupting our speaker today. Uh, you know, I always thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. And from time to time, the uh, newspaper likes to send someone over here to do an introduction, and that uh, is our good fortune today. And today we have with us Nicole McMullen, who is digital director and interim editor of timesdispatch.com. And Nicole will come up on stage and introduce today's speaker. Nicole? Hello, everyone. It's good to see so many people this afternoon. Thank you all for coming out. As, as Paul said, I work with the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and we're honored to, to sponsor this series. And it's great to see so many people interested. 
Um, I want to introduce you today uh, to uh, Neva Hart. Um, she, she, um, reading about the quilts has been really interesting. I am pretty excited to hear more about, you know, the different types and even just sitting down there a minute ago, there's comments on, you know, what type of quilt this is. So I think it'll be really interesting. Um, and as you know, quilts are more than simply objects that cover our beds. They've been used throughout our history to express patriotism, communicate political beliefs, to raise money, honor the dead, and celebrate the living. It's a story that today's speaker has stitched together from surviving examples of quilts as old as the Republic to the digital quilts of the 21st century. Neva Hart was certified as a professional appraiser by the American Quilters Society in 2001. She has appraised quilts at the local, regional, and national level for collectors and museums, and she served as president of the Professional Association of, of Appraisers Quilted Textiles and as a board member of the Virginia Quilt Museum in Harrisonburg. And in addition to that, somehow has made time to also bring us this book today, so that's <laughs> quite impressive. Neva enjoys documenting Virginia quilts and has served as editor and contributor to the 2000 book, Quilts of Virginia, The Birth of America Through the Eye of a Needle. Of course, you can purchase the book and have it signed in the museum shop today after the lecture. As a quilt historian, she presented her research at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation's 2012 Quilt Symposium and most recently worked with the Blue Ridge Institute and Museum of Ferrum College to organize the exhibition the Great Western Virginia Cover-Up, Historic Quilts and Bed Covers, which is currently on display upstairs. As an independent curator, Neva writes, lectures, researches, and collects antique and art quilts from her home near Roanoke. So please join me in welcoming Neva today, who will speak to us about the history of quilting in war and pieces. Thank you all, and I have to be especially appreciative of the Virginia Historical Society for their wonderful hospitality, true to Virginia style. I'm a quilt historian. Who knew there were quilt historians? <laughs> but as a, a student of history and inquisitive minds, I think we're all finding more specialists in the historical area. As a historian, I collect and study quilts and their history. And during my study, I was surprised to find out that the American Revolution was not started with the Boston Tea Party, but rather the fight was over fabric. <laughs> so let me tell you what I've learned. And this is not revisionist history. The fight started in 1764. Parliament had passed revisions to its law, the Sugar Act. Colonists had avoided paying taxes on rum and sugar and molasses, and Parliament had decided that they needed to beef up the tax collection and, and encourage enforcement. And so they added some other uh, products under the Sugar Act to be taxed. One of those was cambric fabric, and printed calico. And of course, England made those products. English law also prohibited the export of textile making equipment and the skilled laborers that knew about weaving and dyeing. 
Although cotton and wool were grown in the colonies, England prohibited the manufacture of finished products in the colonies, thereby forcing the Americans to buy from the British manufacturers. These laws caused disruption in foreign trade by the Americas because they did not have any exports and therefore didn't have any currency available for us to purchase imports. Therefore, always expensive, textiles became even more expensive. So for clothing and home furnishings, colonists resorted to home-woven fabrics made from their homegrown flax for linen and their sheep's wool. Combining these two fabrics, linen and wool, the fibers, created a cloth called Lindsay Woolsey. It was rough and tough, but durable. However, when calendared, the cloth becomes shiny, kind of like serge, and very pretty. This cloth became known as calamanco. Now, during the time before the revolution, the quilts were stylish. They, we hear the story about quilts being made from scraps, and that's why they're in tiny pieces, but now you can see cloth was very expensive, and one of the reasons they used these tiny pieces is because that they had to use up everything there was. It was very difficult to get. Now, we all know what a quilt is. It's a top, a middle layer, like a sandwich with a bottom. Quilts made from calamanco came from England, but they also were made in the New, in New England states. They came from England and were made in New England in the colonies. This is a calamanco quilt. Many of them were whole cloth quilts and uh, they would not have a border, but this one from my collection, the outer border was originally aqua or a light nice blue and that is made from linen and the center panel was actually a calamanco petticoat, highly quilted. The quilted petticoat probably came from England. Then it was taken apart and made in as the center panel of this quilt. Now these would be heavy. The, in, the batting or interior lining of the quilt was wool and it would have been, the petticoat would have been used in this style of dress. This center panel, which is brown in the picture, would have been this blue petticoat. So it was taken apart and made into a quilt, reused. The back, however, is Lindsay Woolsey. Now this is a very rough, tough fabric before the calendaring process. It was made into, in panels here because it was, that's what they had available. It's probably one of the reasons the quilt still survives. When the revolution was declared, soldiers were clothed in cotton, linen, and linsey woolsey. You can just imagine how that felt against their skin, but of course I'm sure they had several layers. Bedroll blankets for the Revolutionary War soldiers were usually homespun wool. From 1776 to 1783, Americans fought for their liberty, and when they won, the country of course had to get back on its feet. By the end of the 18th century, after the invention of the cotton gin and clandestine immigration of skilled laborers, America was producing textiles which competed with English products in both quality and quantity. Of course, England continued to disrupt American trade. 
and that came to a head in 1812 when war over trade and economic issues was again declared. In an effort to thwart America's textile industry, Parliament revealed it repealed its textile laws in 1813. This flooded the market and allowed workers and textile machinery to be exported anywhere. With the end of that war in 1815, cloth products were at the top of the list for hungry merchants. Successful American manufacturing had created a wealthy urban class, and they had money to buy manufactured goods, clothing, and domestics made both locally and imported. Quilts were still highly fashionable. If you go to Mount Vernon, you will see quilts on George Washington's bed. If you go to Monticello, you will, still, you will see quilts on Thomas Jefferson's bed. And of course, the styles of the, of the prints of these fabrics changed, but they were still highly fashionable. But still, we could not keep up with the demand. Cloth had to be reused and put to different uses. For example, this is a glazed chintz quilt. To us, it looks like one panel of fabric. But upon closer inspection, you will see that the panels had to be pieced, and the glaze is still evident. And what these were, were it was a bed covering, as well as the valence over the poster bed and the bed hangings. They had taken those down from a previous homeowner and put together in this whole cloth quilt. The country continued to prosper for the next few decades. But by the 1830s, America's conscience was pricked by the abolitionist movement, a war against slavery. The Anti-Slavery Society was formed by the Quakers in 1833 to help slaves find their way to freedom. You may be familiar with a book written in 1999 about quilts being used as a code for runaway slaves. The book asserts that quilts with certain patterns were hung over fences to guide slaves trying to escape northward to Canada. This quilt, you will see, has the white triangles facing north, Sometimes these work. And face, facing south. Now, to quilt historians, this might be revisionist history. We have not found any documentation in our research that quilts were actually used in this fashion. And if you stop and think about it, you hang a quilt in the dark. How is anybody going to see what it's supposed to say? to someone who's trying to stay undercover. Also, some of the fabric, uh, the pattern names for these quilts that this book story tells about, the pattern names such as um, Drunkard's Path, or Flying Geese, or Monkey Wrench, those were not names used for those patterns during that particular time frame. The book states, that slaves were told to follow the flying geese north to freedom or follow the drunkard's path. So we have to say that until we find proof, we are not believing that particular uh, proposition. As the social arguments about slavery fermented in the East during the early 1840s, 
the call of the West was too hard to resist for pioneers who were promised free land just for the risk of staking a claim. Like war refugees, women were torn from their family and friends, fighting back tears of separation as they climbed onto covered wagons and joined the migration west. In 1840s, the nation's largest industry was cotton production. With plenty of fabrics to choose from, quilters created elaborate friendship album quilts as departing gifts to ministers, teachers, friends, and relatives. Often the quilts included signatures in the cloth blocks as mementos or sentiments. This became a special technique in Baltimore, as you may be familiar uh, with the term Baltimore album quilt. This quilt was made in Lower Chesterfield, Virginia, now Powhatan for a teacher. The names on the quilt have been traced to neighbors as well as friends as far away as Richmond. This one says L.A. Bass, Richmond, Virginia. And these fabrics were fabrics of apparel weight. This is the clothing they wore. How would you like a dress made out of that? <laughs> M. Maria Bass and J.A. Branch, Richmond. Of the colorful quilts taken west, many were used to bury pioneers along the trail. The special treatment that Western museums provide these quilts that survived is testimony to the emotional attachment given these treasures. Quilts were comfort for fear and grief and reminders of wounded dreams. But war against Mexico was declared in 1848. Ladies' sewing circles generated flags and uniforms for their soldiers' sons and husbands. This was the beginning of the Ladies' Aid Society movement. Diaries record that an Indiana ladies' group took only three days to sew uniforms for the entire county's volunteer unit. Messages of encouragement and patriotism were delivered with handmade flags with instructions such as, return this flag if one soldier is left to bring it home. <laughs> After the Mexican War, the political tone of the country was tense. The problem was whether newly acquired, acquired territory would allow slavery. A major player in the political arena was the Whig Party, active from 1833 to 1856. The party ran candidates William Henry Harrison for president in 1840 and Henry Clay from Kentucky in 1844. In 1848, the party's candidate, Zachary Taylor from Barbersville, Virginia, won the presidency. However, he ducked the is issue of slavery during his administration. In, now, I, there is a point to this. In 1850, the great compromise in Congress over how territory and states would treat slavery caused the Whig Party to divide. Southern Whigs opposed the compromise. Northern members supported it. This became the foundation of the two-party system that we have today. Now recall, women were not allowed to vote, but that did not keep them from expressing their sentiments about hot political issues. This is a quilt, probably made in Indiana, and the title of the pattern name is Whig Rose. 
very positive, very colorful. Anybody would be proud to display it. This pattern is called Wig's Defeat. <laughs> this was made in Knoxville, Tennessee by Esther Brawley. Now, Esther has an interesting story. She was born and raised in Boston and married a man who and moved to Knoxville. Is there any question what she wanted to support? As the unrest over slavery kept building, Virginia's Shenandoah Valley residents were divided in their support for Southern secession and slavery. This is a quilt from the Virginia Quilt Museum known as the Botanical Album Quilt. It was made by Esther Matthews in 1858. Esther was born in 1776. Her husband served in the War of 1812. She lived in um, Lacey Springs, Virginia, which is just north of Harrisonburg. There was a Civil War battle there, but remember the campaign that came through the valley. Now, in 1858, when she made this quilt, she left a little message in one of the blocks. Just below the rainbow of hope is this tree with all these balls on it. She wrote, Tree of Liberty and United States. Was there any sentiment in 1858, any question about her sentiments as to what was going on? Now, her son-in-law was in the state legislature at the time and did have to vote on secession. So the family knew the winds of war were coming, and they moved Grandma down to Montgomery County and Floyd County. And my research shows that she probably was carried, as we call it in the western part of the state, down to that southern part to be safe. So she gave, her, her, her grandson probably took her down there to stay with her daughter who was living there. So she gave the quilt to her grandson and quilted his name in it in 1859. Esther survived long enough to see the country reunited. Her grandson did not. He died in the Battle of the Wilderness. The sewing machine was invented by the mid-1850s, and in fact, there was a sewing machine invented in Rafane, uh, Virginia, which is along I-81. In the North, it was soon in many households, whether from availability, lack of ability, or lack of demand, not as many were in Southern homes. The availability of the sewing machine made a big difference to supplying soldiers in the Civil War. A calico dress, which took six and a half hours to make by hand, could be made with the home sewing machine in 57 minutes. It has been estimated that 50% of the quilts made after 1860 were machine stitched. Because the southern textile industry was only in its infancy at the beginning of the war, embargoes that shut off imports of manufactured goods to the south made the need for both clothing and bedding acute. At the beginning of the recent unpleasantness, Fathers and sons were sent off to fight with bedrolls and quilts from home, sometimes made from scraps of clothes from their mothers and their sweethearts as reminders of home. But we didn't think it was going to last more than six weeks, and so some of our fanciest quilts were also sent with the boys. Records show they ended up as saddle blankets. Working in groups in so with sewing machines installed in churches and homes, southern ladies produced prodigious amounts of bedding 
and uniforms for their boys. According to records, black as well as white women quilted coverings which were sent to makeshift hospitals. Now, remember Gone with the Wind. Now, you all do watch that every year, I'm sure. <laughs> Scarlett O'Hara is standing behind a booth in her widow's weeds, tapping her foot, wishing she were out on the dance floor. She was selling raffle tickets for a quilt. Early in the war, expensive silk and heavily quilted quilts were auctioned or raffled so that proceeds could be used to build Confederate naval vessels called gunboats. This is one of those that survive, one of the two that survive, and the first, this is in the collection of the first White House of the Confederacy in Montgomery, Alabama. This one was made in 1861. It is now in the Birmingham Museum of Art, and it was recently brought out for a quilt study group so that it could be seen close up. The colors are probably true, because it wouldn't have been red, white, and blue. <laughs> Notice the thickly stuffed flowers and the heavy embellishment. According to the March 1862 issue of the Richmond Daily Dispatch, Richmond and Williamsburg women responded to the call to raise money for gunboats. However, the effort died quickly due to failure of that naval strategy. But embargoes of goods from the South's European allies took its toll on those left. Families returned to weaving homespun linsey cloth to clothe themselves. This is also known as slave cloth, and they provided it for their soldiers. An exhausted Tennessee wife wrote that she had woven 600 yards of cloth since fall. Still, to pass the tedious waiting time for news of battles, many beautiful quilts were made during that period. Some survived the raids and ruin. However, I must admit that when people bring a quilt to me and said it was buried with the silver to protect it from the Yankees, I have to remind them what southern clay looks like when it gets wet. In 1861, Peter's Magazine published a pattern. Now this is from the collection of the Daughters of American Revolution. There is also a similar quilt in the Smithsonian. Obviously, northern sentiment. But this happens to be the earliest color quilt pattern found in any American periodical. This particular quilt was made in Brooklyn, New York. In the north, Mothers and sweethearts of soldiers formed ladies' aid societies to make socks, shirts, shoes, and quilts for the soldier. The aid society became a unit of the U.S. Sanitary Commission, a government agency organized to provide supplies and medical care for Union soldiers. One of the found U.S. Sanitary Commission flyers that have been recorded lists the articles most wanted blankets for single beds, quilts of cheap material about seven feet long by 50 inches wide, knit woolen socks, woolen or canton flannel bedgowns, wrappers, undershirts, and drawers. <coughs> All items should be closely packed in wooden boxes or in strongly wrapped bales. A list of what it contains should be placed on top. A duplicate of this list should be sent by mail addressed to the U.S. Sanitary Commission. 
Now, one of the main projects of Ladies' Aid was to make quilts for soldiers at the front and those in the hospital. It is estimated that 250,000 quilts were made in the North. Penned inscriptions on the quilt blocks revealed sympathies. One read, while our fingers guide the needles, our thoughts are intense, in parentheses, T-E-N-T-S. <laughs> now this is not an exact replica of the long, narrow cot quilt or knapsack quilt that was made, but it gives you a better idea of the practical matter, uh, in manner in which the quilts were made. These were hastily quilted comforters and they, um, they often included these verses of encouragement in the quilt blocks. A common feature in the North was the piecing and quilting of the blocks in a unit then sewn together to make the quilt of required dimensions. Called potholder style quilts, about five of these potholder quilts survive. Many were used up or used as burial shrouds for those who died in the hospitals because there was a shortage of wooden coffins. Now this was made with a block and then sewn around the edge you could make those at home and then go to the ladies' aid group meeting and then they would sew all of these together in the required long and narrow format. A common feature in the North, oh, we did that part. After the war, military unions issued ribbon souvenirs which found their way into quilts. This one found its way into a crazy quilt in Rockingham County, Virginia. This would have been one of the ribbons that you wore when you, as a, as a, uh, a uh, survivor of being a soldier. This one is made by someone from the GAR. You all know that GIR, Grand Army of the Republic, but it was made with Confederate and Union uniforms. After the Civil War, Aid societies were quilt, made quilts for freed slaves. These quilts were distributed through the National Freedmen's Relief Association in Washington, D.C. But the momentum and the energy organized by the Ladies' Aid Society was the genie that wouldn't go back in the bottle. Nationwide, Christian soldiers declared the moral equivalent of war on mostly male consumption of alcohol. Organized in 1874, the Women's Christian Temperance Union was formed and marched in the streets campaigning for an eight-hour workday, prison reform, child welfare for workers, and women's suffrage. Now, textiles, according to history, were an integral part of the WCTU, or as the men would call it, the Women Constantly Talking Union. <laughs> Chapters would make raffle quilts to generate funds for their cause. Now this quilt pattern is called Drunkard's Path. Does that ring a bell? It's associated with the WCTU. And in previous studies, we have been told that the WCTU used a pale blue or a medium blue as their signature color 
And we know that they made quilts to raffle, and they would have people pay so much money then you could have your signature embroidered on these quilts, and that was their fundraiser. In my research, I have never found a pale blue or a medium blue quilt from this time period in this pattern. So once again, we're thinking revisionist history. The quilt um, in 1878, the Rhode Island chapter made a quilt with 3,000 signatures on it, each name representing the financial contribution of the owner. In 1907, there were more than 350,000 members nationwide. That's a lot of money. By the end of the 19th century, things were peaceful until 1898, when the battleship the Maine was sunk in Havana Harbor. Soldiers of the Spanish-American War and Teddy Roosevelt returned from Cuba with new knowledge of Spanish culture. Quilters took the ribbons from Cuban cigars and made quilts. Now, the interesting thing about this, and see this black, ruffly edge, sort of senorita kind of thing, was made in the Middle Valley of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania grew tobacco. Pennsylvania made small, short cigars. These particular ribbons bundled around cigars were sold at the local hardware and paint store. It was a marketing tool. Now, the lady who made this quilt owned a rooming house, and her roomers would go down at, after work and buy their cigars. The place must have smelled wonderful. <laughs> and, that, and she asked them to save the ribbons, and she made this quilt. Now, this Rihanna Maria, or Mira, Mia, what it's kind of hard to tell, it doesn't mean anything. It was just influence from the Spanish-American culture. At the turn of the century, international trade and competition still drove invest, investment and politics. When the war to end all wars was declared, the Ladies' Aid Society morphed into the American Red Cross. Again, ladies rolled bandages, knitted socks, and made quilts for soldiers and war relief. The quilts were immediately identifiable white background with rows of red crosses and room for signatures. If you paid to have your name embroidered on one of these American Red Cross quilts, the funds could buy an ambulance, many pounds of knitting, wool, bedding for over 100 hospital beds, or quantities of bandages. I have a uh, newspaper article from the Atlanta Constitution 1918, talking about coming to the workroom and everybody bringing their supplies. It was time to get these off. And one of the major topics of discussion for that particular meeting was going to be whether to adopt an orphan of the uh, fatherless orphan, orphan from France. And then it goes on to list how many masks and gowns that they were going to have to be making. And it said, please bring in your quilt squares so that we can put the quilt together. This was all going to be headed to Fort Eustace not Eustace, um, the fort that was right there in Atlanta. And they were ready to ship out to France. Now, prior to 1914, which was the beginning of World War I, the German textile industrialists had developed synthetic dyes to uh, superior to any other in any industrialized country. 
and they held the patents for this internationally. So when the German plants turned to making munitions and war supplies for World War I, American fabric companies faced ruin. We had no dye industry. This is one of the uh, Red Cross blocks in honor of the soldiers from the war. And this particular quilt was from that time period just before the war. It originally, of course, I had to buy it because it's an H and my last name starts with H. It originally was green, the green that we all know of as awning shade green, about the middle part of the last century, everybody had green canvas awnings out over their living room windows, or they had those dark green window blinds, shades. That's the color of green this used to be. When I bought this quilt, it smelled. So I put it in the bathtub, and I rinsed, and the water came out black. And so I washed, and I rinsed, and I washed, and, and it, the water just kept getting black. And then I looked at it, and I realized I was washing the dye out of the quilt. <laughs> However, as spoils of war, America was awarded Germany's dye patents. So we're back on our feet once again. Even though 1,200 shades of color were available in 1870s, it wasn't until after World War I that certain shades of color such as cheddar orange or indigo blue could be produced as well as those from the original recipes in the 1840s. But the war to end all wars didn't. From 1939 to 1945, the world was again on fire. Quilts were important to war victims. Canadian ladies' aid groups sent quilts with labels to England. 180 of these survive and have been documented. There was very strong attachment to these quilts that were used during the Blitz. Others that didn't survive were either used up or discarded with bad sentiment. American Mennonites sent quilts to Holland for Russian refugees. Mrs. Alta Smith of Lee County, Virginia, made this quilt in 1933 for the World's Fair Chicago Century of Progress exhibition. She sent it out to be quilted, but when it was finished, she didn't like seeing the pencil marks that were still on it, which marked the, li the lines that people used to quilt on for the quilting design. So she didn't enter the competition. When her son went to the Navy during World War II, she gave the quilt to him. The mattress company Stearns and Foster manufactured quilt batting and published quilt patterns. They have a whole series of World War II quilt patterns. These are now collector's items, and such quilts were once again being made by wives and mothers, including Gold Star mothers, who were sitting at home waiting. As life changed for Rosie the Riveter, who had time to quilt? <laughs> Quilting was fairly dormant until the bicentennial of 1976. America experienced a rebirth. Once again, quilts became expressions of hope and remembrance. Do you remember the AIDS quilt? Quilts for cancer survivors, and those affected by natural disasters such as Hurricane <coughs> Katrina. In 1990, our soldiers were sent to the Middle East during Desert Storm. 
quilters again rallied. Now this was about the time the computers were coming into the households as common items. Ring a bell? And we didn't at that time think about archiving, saving, putting it on the cloud, but what quilters did is they would sit at home and create a quilt square on their computer and then they would share it and people would combine them and create virtual quilts. But we didn't save any. Just through our personal re uh, remembrances do we know that this was an activity. In 2003, however, quilters had to start the organization Quilts of Valor to honor and comfort wounded warriors of the war on terror. With donated time and materials, quilters have made quilts that were given to wounded medical helpers, clergy, and those left behind. In 2010, the Washington Post ran an, a pictorial essay series on medical transport from the wharf from the field to the medical uh, facilities. One of the pictures, this was actually the first time I had seen quilts of valor used. Every one of the lit litters on that medical transport plane is covered by a quilt. This particular plane was going from Bagram Air Force Base to Landstall in Germany. I do a lot of work with the Virginia Beach and Newport News quilt groups. As of July, the Newport News group had made 700 quilts for Quilts of Valor. Nationally, the organization has made, as of Monday, 88 1,405 quilts. Another national group is the Home of the Brave. They make quilts dedicated to our fallen heroes, fashioned on the same dimensions as the U.S. Sanitary Commission quilts. They have distributed, upon request, more than 5,000 quilts to families. America has always been a dangerous nation. Quilters have always been there to pick up the pieces. Any questions? When you are praising quilts, what do you look for to help establish its value and age and so forth? Remember when you're appraising something such as personal property, it's the same thing as your furniture, it's the same thing as your car. It's whatever the market will pay at that particular time. The things that go into the value and making a quilt valuable or not are similar to condition, condition, <laughs> uh, and probably the other most important thing is condition. <laughs> Sometimes as a quilt researcher, I wake up in the morning and think I'm still back in the 1800s. And those quilts from that particular time period are starting to deteriorate. There is nothing we can do to stop it. It's the nature of the beast. And uh, those quilts are going to be even more important, the ones that are in the best condition. So those are the ones that bring the highest value in the market. That doesn't mean, however, that someone will not pay up for provenance 
history, uh, some particular quilt pattern they happen to be in love with. Um, ge a geographical region, I like southern quilts, I collect southern quilts. And as a um, reference to the quilt documentation day that we're going to be having at the end of September here at the Virginia Historical Society, this is how we learn about quilts and how we can identify a quilt as a southern quilt, how old is it, we, we document the genealogy of the quilt, we document the genealogy of the quilt maker, and we look at the quilt to see what the quilt can actually tell us. Sometimes people will pay more for that. Sometimes it doesn't make any difference at all. If you want a quilt to decorate the beach cottage with, you don't really care where it came from or what it looks like, but you're not going to pay up like it, you would for a museum piece. And many times we hear advertisements, especially on eBay, where they say, quilt is museum quality. Well, what's museum quality? <laughs> Depends on what it is, where it's from, what story does it tell, what can it add to the museum's collection. So when I appraise quilts, there are different factors, but it all depends on what somebody will pay for. Does that answer your question? <laughs> when uh, President and Mrs. Reagan were in the White House, um, they commissioned a quilt called Goose Tracks to give, are you familiar with this? Not that particular quilt, I know the pattern. Well, I tried to look it up, and there are a lot of patterns. <laughs> I would like to find a, that quilt. They took it to Russia and gave it as a gift when they made their trip to Russia. American quilts are highly valued by foreigners. Uh, they like the American craft feeling. That is a very highly sought-after souvenir. All of our diplomatic corps takes quilts as well as pottery and woodcrafts and so on, and, and those are the presents that we often give out through the diplomatic um, offices. That particular quilt, you'd have to probably start with the Reagan Library, and it is just like anything else if you're going to be doing research on something, because some time has gone by now, but if it was given away, the chances are it would, you're going to have to hunt a little bit, and it might be more in the archives than it will be on Pinterest. And we have learned so much. The first time we did quilt documentation, which is the product of the book that you'll see down in the bookstore, that was done, th that documentation and research was done in the late 1980s and early 1990s, almost before rotary cutters, if anybody knows what that is. I don't quilt, so I don't, but um, the, there has been almost a whole generation since that first research. So we didn't keep pictures back then like we do now with our iPhones. So uh, it's a little harder to find some of the product that you're talking about. Just takes a little longer. Yes, you've already answered my question. I was going to ask you if you did quilts. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, some, people, some. some people bake bread, some people eat it. Yes. <laughs> but I, I loved your lecture. It reminds me of my grandmother and my mother and their quilts and their bread. And this is interesting. Thank you so much. I find that this is, uh, quilts are very translatable and it's something that men enjoy just as much as women, sometimes for different reasons. But when I first got married, my husband said, I'm not gonna sleep under that quilt, it has your mother's fingers. <laughs> uh, 
in your research, uh, did you document or come across the use of quilting in some of the uh, hospitals in the Civil War that they uh, introduced to help the veterans who, uh, or the soldiers who were wounded uh, regain the use of some of their uh, facilities. We call it post-traumatic syn war syndrome now. Personally, no, I have not during the Civil War. However, in England, that was a common thing. The men would take their uniforms and cut them up, and they were called soldiers' quilts, and they are uh, astoundingly beautiful, very geometric, very intricate, but it was used as therapy, yes. A lot more in England. I'm, I'm talking about the, um, the Boer War and some of the very early wars in England. They did that. Um, there are a few of those that are available, actually, for sale right now in the United States. But as, a, as therapy from the Civil War, American Civil War, I personally have not. And if you have evidence of that, I would be very interested in knowing about that. It was still a woman's work back then. The weaving was done by men, always has been done by men. But the quilting was more of a woman's. That's not to say that men didn't help. We just, I just haven't seen that in my own research. Uh, I'd be curious as to the highest price that you have known a quilt selling for. As with real estate, the quilt market has suffered. In the 1970s, I'd say, uh, the, in, the, in, in the late 70s, there was a fabulous quilt exhibit at the Whitney in New York. Amish quilts were actually taken off the beds and put on the walls, and it was the first time actually people looked at quilts as art. And then the quilt movement with the bicentennial really exploded. And in 1974, I believe it was, a uh, quilt retail quilter in New York paid $254,000 for a Baltimore album quilt. I don't know where that quilt is now because that shop has gone out of business. Most recently, uh, the most expensive quilts are about in the 50000 and they're very rare to be in that. It is not unusual to have a newly made quilt valued higher than antique quilts. The price of fabric has gone up. Labor has gone up. Um, we know more about it now. People pay now. This isn't to say people are paying for it necessarily, but we all, and these are traditional quilts I'm talking about. They could easily, if it's made by hand, I could easily appraise some of those quilts at seven thousand dollars. Antiques, you'd really have to work hard to get five thousand dollars for some quilts right now. It's just the nature of the market. Everybody wants to buy it, but they don't have the money, or they say, I could make it. Of course, they never do, but, <laughs> you know, just nobody's buying. Very, it's, we're, we're hoping that we've seen some cracks in the quilt market, but it's so much dependent upon condition. Everybody's got quilts now. They're coming out of the woodwork, and we've done this to ourselves. Everybody makes quilts, and they don't want to buy quilts. So uh, the Chinese imports also made an impact. It, it's been an interesting road to follow for the last 25 years, the, the quilt market. There's one over here. Thank you. Um, Hi. Yeah, I, nice to see you again. Ellis? Um, oh, you've got a good memory. Um, now I forgot my question. No. <laughs> 
Happens to me every day. <laughs> you were talking about uh, the United States being awarded the dye uh, formulas pa uh, patents. Where else did we get, were there other countries that also, um, countries that made dyes that we bought from, and before we had those formulas, were there a lot of handmade dyes that were used that maybe had faded on the materials because of their lack of permanency? That's a whole nother lecture. Okay. <laughs> we have had dyes in the world forever. Of course, they were natural dyes up until around the late 1850s when by mistake, um, and I think his name was Goodrich or Goodyear or something like that. It was one of those names that you attach with another product, but he, he was working in his kitchen and something spilled and it turned out to be coal tar and it turned something purple and it stayed purple and it was a permanent purple and that was the first synthetic dye. So we actually did not have synthetic dyes until around the mid 19th century. Everything before that was a natural dye, which means it was made from natural products. Bark, walnut shells, uh, Prussian blue, combinations of things. And, and some of those dye recipes were highly guarded. Very important because it would make their fabric better than the next guy. And then people would buy their fabric as opposed to. We had a huge textile industry in America. It's an interesting, um, but uh, that's a whole other deal. Other countries would include Turkey, and, and they had uh, a product called Turkey Red. And it was an 11-step process which included oil, which therefore made it permanent. Um, there were permanent dyes, as I find every day when I eat. But it, um, <laughs> it, it, it depended on whether they could make it in quantity. A pound of indigo, which of course indigo was very one of our big export crops in the south, out of South Carolina, a pound of indigo uh, was more expensive than gold. It just took so much to make that dried product. Carol? We'd like to have your questions so that we can do it on the video. <laughs> I was just wondering how many feed bag quilts you found. Uh, more than I can count. Feed bags actually were used in the mid-1800s. They are not just a phenomenon of the Depression era. Now, people collect feed bags. Remember, we also had sugar sacks. We had flour sacks. It wasn't all just grain for mules. So these sacks have been around for a long time, and it's not necessarily coarse fabric. There's um, quite a study of feed sacks, and it was a marketing technique for the manufacturers of the grain product to put it in these colorful sacks because mom would go with dad to the store on Saturday, and she says, I want that sack. He says, but we don't have any poultry. <laughs> I don't care, I want that sack. And some of those sacks are now selling for as much as $60 a sack. Um, but the people in North Carolina will tell you that they made their underwear during the Depression out of feed sacks. So, but the flower sacks were nice per kale. So there's quite a study on feed sacks and they are ubiquitous and it's not easy to always tell in a quilt whether that was a feed sack or just a poor quality cotton, woven cotton. 
especially from the textile area down along the North Carolina-Virginia border, you'll see a, a lot that'll confuse you. You have to be careful. At an exhibit at the Renwick Gallery in Washington recently, a furniture exhibit, there were some quilts and the fabric was said to have been fondue, printed, or dyed. Um, do you have information about that type of dyeing or printing? Fondue is a graduated sort of a rainbow effect and it was a print technique and often used with steam printing. It would go from very dark, let's say Prussian blue, which is a, a gorgeous teal blue color, sort of color, and it would gradually fade into a lighter color, maybe going into a pink, and then it would turn into a yellow. And for some reason, they labeled that fondue or rainbow print. Those were very popular in American style, also English and French, a little earlier. Our styles were a little later than theirs. But during that first quarter to first half of the 1800s, it was a very popular style, um, expensive to make. So those particular fabrics were high quality, high end. Uh, does that help you any? Yes. You'll, it's, it's so much fun to watch the translation or transfer of designs from furniture to fabrics to quilts. You'll see a lot, if you, if you start standing back and looking at it now, you can see that a lot of those patterns are the same. Punch tin pie saves, you can see that pattern in the quilting pattern. And that's regional. And in our documentation studies, we have been able to learn enough about quilts that I can tell you whether that was a Northern Virginia quilt, a Shenandoah quilt, a Southwest Virginia quilt. And that's why the exhibit here is so important is because the Southwest Virginia quilts are very different from what you'll see along the coast. What is the best way to store quilts in order to preserve them? First of all, we have a saying that if you feel your old quilt needs to be washed, lie down until the feeling goes away. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on the quilt, as few folds as possible. And if you do fold the quilt, fold it differently six months later so that you don't have a permanent crease. What happens when you constantly fold the quilt through the center in quarters? is the top layer and the bottom layer uh, start rubbing together because the batting has separated along that crease line. And that top layer and bottom layer then start to rub and tear. And it's, yes, you can repair a quilt, but it's never the same. So try not to go there. If you have acid-free tissue paper, which you can get at your dry cleaning stores or you can get it at quilt shops, you can get it online, museums use it, acid-free tissue on top of the fabric, especially for crazy quilts that are so delicate and fragile and tissuey, you put the paper on there before you do any folding so that the fabrics don't rub against each other again. Rolling is fine if you don't have too many rolls because eventually they're all is going to compress and crease. So, I don't like pillowcases. You have to fold things too many times to put them in pillowcases, and unless it's a brand new pillowcase, you, you have body oil from those old fibers. Just take an old muslin piece of fabric and cover it. For cotton quilts, any temperature that feels comfortable to our skin is comfortable for cotton. So what you're trying to do is protect it from the dust, protect it from the sun, protect it from 
insects, the cat, and so on, and fold it as, as little as possible. Now, for art quilts, uh, flat. Of course, flat is always best so you don't have any folds. If you've got an old bed, I mean, an old uh, guest room, you put the old quilt face down and just store it flat. And go ahead and stack them. It's within reason. It's okay. For art quilts, flat if you have to roll them. But the art quilts are a different beast. So many of them have paint, embellishment, um, fuse, uh, lots of petroleum-related embellishments and, and products in them. Um, they're going to be stiff and they're going to fade. So that's a whole different conversation from antiques. You mentioned the Southwest Virginia influence. Could you mention some of the designs that you've seen, say, from the Montgomery County, Blacksburg, Floyd area? We have not done quilt documentation in that area yet, so I'm going to be very eager to see what we find when we do that. Um, uh, September, Oct no, October 19th, we're going to be at the Meadowview Library doing documentations. Now, what I'm expecting and what I have seen in the past is a lot of translation into Monroe County, I think it's Mercer County, West Virginia. We see a lot of overlap. You'll find in the Southwest, mostly pieced. We have some preference for kit quilts, which were made from uh, kits that you would buy at the local Montgomery Ward or Belks or something like that in applique. Now, those, those early uh, 1900 to 1920 to 1940 quilts were very popular, but they were also used up. So we see them but they're in bad shape. Crazy quilts. Every, everybody loved crazy quilts. I don't know whether it's the textile scraps, factory outlet opportunities that we had down there, or whether it was just make do, but lots and lots of crazy quilts, not just from luxury fabrics of silks and satins and silk velvets, but from the wool suiting samples and, and uh, dressmaking and so on that were very practical down there in Southwest Virginia, and they, they liked putting scraps together in a random fashion. But right now, I can say um, there's no specific preference to the 20th century. The 19th century showed a lot of influence from Tennessee, which is your bright orange, lots of red and white, um, and sort of fancy. You look downstairs, and you'll see some of those patterns. No particular one or two patterns, but I would say pieced over applique. Please join me in thanking Lima Hart.